And following up from that, we had one more message from the pre-service prayer team, which is from Psalm 46. When we pray for things, sometimes it seems easy listening. But the, the verse says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in all the earth. I will be exalted in all the nations. Thank you, Jesus. So, Father, we just come now and uh, pray that you bless the rest of this uh, time with you. So Sue is coming now to read from Genesis 48, if you have a Bible handy, and then um, our pastor will come and open that message to us about Joseph. Our reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 48, verses 8 to 22. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. When Israel said, Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. This is the word of the Lord.
If you have your if you have your Bibles out, um, please do turn to chapter forty-eight, and we'll actually look at snippet of chapter fifty as well. But let's uh, pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we thank you so much for the amazing uh, salvation that we have received through your Son Jesus, and we come. Uh, in spirit of thanksgiving and praise. And we pray that you'll remind us once again of what you have done and your greatness and your wisdom, that we might move, uh, we might uh, be moved to trust uh, our lives in your hands and live to please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We often wish each other blessings, don't we? I mean, we say, bless you when somebody sneezes, and I sometimes end my email, every blessings or something like that. We all mean well, but few of us take those words very seriously. What does it mean to bless each other? Well, the blessing in the book of Genesis is a serious matter. Jacob takes it very seriously. Remember the original promise made to Abraham that goes back to chapter 12, Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. The promise comes in the context of Genesis 3 to 11, when the world is filled with curses. The utterance of blessing gave people a ray of hope that things will actually turn around, things will change with this election of Abraham. And Jacob took blessings seriously. Think about all that he did. He stole the, his birthright, the birthright from his brother Esau, and then he tricked his father to receive Esau's blessings. It meant a lot to him. When things didn't go his way, he then tried to get the things of his blessings but work, by working really hard. Then he won another blessing when he wrestled with the angel until the dawn of the morning. And he wanted those blessings because it meant something to him. He took it seriously. And now Jacob, in his dying days, his eyes are dim. Um, he, in his dying days, he sees his uh, uh, Joseph and, and the two children. He wants to bless his grandchildren. And when he heard that Joseph's family came in, he asked Joseph in verse 9, bring them to me so that I may bless them. So Joseph, in verse 13, took both of them, Ephraim on his right uh, towards Israel's left and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. You notice their positions, right? Joseph brought the eldest son, the older son Manasseh, to Israel's right hand. Um, and Ephraim, the younger one, to Jacob's left hand. This, of course, is because right hand is the favored position, position where the eldest son should be. The eldest son is supposed to receive the greater blessing. As the eldest son, he was considered the pride and joy of the family. And not only that, he will inherit a double portion of the family and become the head of the family. It's no wonder later on Jesus is actually called the, 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 the firstborn of all creation because he will be the head over the all creation. Right hand is where the elder son is supposed to be. But... What happens next is almost sort of comical because he does, even in his dim sight, he recognizes what is going on. And when he blesses the children, he crosses his arms like this. He puts his left hand on the elder son and right hand on the, 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 um, the younger son. This is not considered natural in that world, not something that is right. That's not how things are supposed to, uh, supposed to be in that world. Joseph, of course, in verse 17, is not pleased with what's going on. 
But this story is in some ways familiar to us because God uh, doing what is unnatural, what is not expected uh, or unusual, God choosing the unlikely is actually the story of the Bible. It's, we've seen that in Genesis already. Abraham was chosen even though he was old. Sarah was chosen, uh, promised, and given a child even though she's barren. Jacob himself was favored even though his brother Esau is the elder son. The pattern will continue actually throughout the Bible. Rahab is saved even though she's a prostitute. Deborah is chosen to lead the nation even though she's a woman. Gideon is chosen as a general to lead even though he is uh, the, the least, he says, from his, the, the, uh, from the least of his fam, uh, least of the family, uh, of the least uh, of the tribe. Samson will be one of the most remembered judges in the book of Judges even though morally speaking he's despicable. David is to bring down Goliath, even though he's half of Goliath's size. When Jesus comes, he chooses prostitutes and tax collectors, women and children and fishermen um, to be his followers and disciples. Jesus himself, of course, comes from a carpenter's family of no remarkable background. This is a pattern. God will cross his hand and bless and choose the ones that he will uh, uh, do what's sort of considered unnatural or unusual or, or unexpected. And I'm sure you, when when you read passages like this, I, I the, the question that comes to my mind is why? What does that mean for us? Does this mean that we can't actually prepare for God's work uh, because He's unpredictable? Does this mean that we can't actually try to become the kinds of people that God will use because well He uses people who seem ill prepared, people who are unexpected? Not suitable sometimes. Does this mean that it's no use for the music team in the morning to practice and prepare themselves? Or me to pour over the scripture carefully in preparing this sermon? Or that it's no use going to seminary because actually that God will choose the unlikely or ill-educated, not educated or not trained person to do his will? Is that what this means? I remember uh, when I was at the Div School, I helped to pastor a church and I, I had the great privilege of preaching uh, 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 regularly, even though really I shouldn't have preached at that time. Um, and whether I can't remember the, the circumstances um, at the time, I, I can't remember whether I was just too lazy or I had a busy week, but I remember clearly that one Sunday I would just wasn't ready to preach. It wasn't, I, my, my sermon was ready, I wasn't ready. And I explained it to uh, one of the student leaders uh, who's now become a, a friend, Brian. And I told him, you know, I'm really not ready. Can you pray for me? And we, you know, for about 15 minutes before the service, we prayed very, I prayed very fervently that God would use even those poorly chosen, poorly prepared words um, to build people up. Then I preached. And it turned out, actually, the response was great. People thought that it was a great sermon. Afterwards, I was, as I was driving home, I talked to Brian. I said to him, look, Brian, I learned something today. I learned that I shouldn't prepare so much. <laughs> because in the end, it's God's work and God's words and not my own. And Brian, my friend, looked at me, and he actually reminded me recently, and he threatened to tell all of you when I was a... Uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, threatened to tell um, all of you how ill-suited I am for a pastoring job. Anyway, so he said to me, he rebuked me and said, he, that is the worst possible lesson that you could learn from this. 
if the lesson that you've learned is it's okay to not prepare, it's okay to take the Bible not seriously, be shoddy with the Word of God, and and not prepare for ministry, um, then then you've learned a terrible lesson. The lesson should be God is great. That God is great, and He could use a person like even a person like you to do his ministry, that God is gracious and merciful, that sometimes God will redeem even the bad words, ill-prepared words, to do his will. And I often think about that exchange. The point is not that being an elder brother, the natural choice, uh, or being the more talented or hardworking or better trained person is useless because God just picks people out of a hat. That's not true. God uses those people too, and Joseph is one of them. Paul is another one. There are plenty of people in that category, I think, in this church as well. He can and will use our preparation, our training, our talents, and our character, because all of that is also God-given. And that's the point, that they all come from God. So when, when, when God uses, when people use their gifts, their talents, and their experience, all the things that have shaped them, it shows the greatness of God. But you see, it should be about God. That's the point. That it shouldn't be about us. It's not about our, uh, it, it, the, all the things that we do should point to God. And it's not all that different from what God says about wealth in Deuteronomy chapter 8. They're about to enter the Israel, uh, the promised land, and God says, you know, you will be rich. But he, uh, God warns people about the richness. He says in chapter 8, be, Beware lest you st- uh, say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have uh, gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. You see, All good things come from God. And when we use gifts that God has given us, it should point us back to God. But because we forget, because sometimes we mistake this, lest we start thinking that it is our talent, our wealth, or our hard work that accomplish God's purpose, that we start thinking that we are indispensable in God's work, God shows that that is not the case by choosing the, uh, the not, not obvious choices, the unthinkable choices. To say that God can do this, it is about him, that th- these gifts, these things come from God himself. And that should humble us, all of us. We can't say, look at what my hands have done. Look at, look at how amazing my work have been. We can't say, why, why God, aren't you using me? As if he owes us something. No, the lesson in this, throughout the scripture is that all good things come from God. That it's about him. We are to offer our lives humbly to him, to be used by him. And this also means that we cannot count ourselves out of God's service. Whether we think that we don't have much of a talent... Or actually, maybe you've done something that you think disqualify you to be used uh, from being used by God. Well, nothing disqualifies us. No one is uh, outside of realm of possibility of God using. Because God is God of power. And God is God of grace. In some ways, you've heard this before. And it's not so surprising that God uses people like you uh, and me. All sorts of people in unexpected ways. We've seen that throughout the Bible. But what is surprising, I think, is that Jacob is the one who gives this cross-handed blessing. 
Remember, Jacob has fought against God's will throughout his life. He's fought against God's way of doing things. He always wanted to do it in in his own way. He wanted to accomplish things with his own power all his life. Back in chapter 5, when he was born, God told Rebekah, the family, that the younger will be, uh, 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 the older will serve the younger, that Jacob would receive the elder son's blessings. But Jacob doesn't rest on that promise. He wants to do things his own way. He wants to do things with his own hands. And so he lives his life miserably, all of his life, in his own way. Instead of resting on God's promise, he stole his brother's blessing, pretended to be Esau to his blind uh, father uh, Isaac. When he didn't get uh, the father's riches and was driven out from home, he works for his uncle Laban. And at the end of those 20 years, he cheats his uncle to get rich. Even though God sends him an angel before he returns back and sees his brother Esau, even though God sends an angel to assure him that everything is going to be okay, he doesn't trust the angel. Later on, that he, uh, uh, he, he wrestles uh, with that angel to receive another assurance. He couldn't trust in God's wise plan, so he constantly resists God and does things his own, in his own, own way. But now that he's older, I think we can see that he's wiser. He's finally grown in wisdom. He learned to trust and submit to God's plans. Look at what he says as he blessed his grandchildren in verse 15. May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all, of, all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. See, he finally trusts in the promise that's made to his family. God of my uh, fathers, Abraham and Isaac. He says that God has been his shepherd all of his life. And that is no small confession of faith for him. When all the family feud, the, uh, the facing death and losing uh, a wife, a uh, child for a time and famine, he says that all of that, God has led him through all. He con- he's confessing what the psalmist in Psalm 23 confesses. Um, He leads me to the right path. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, he is with me. See, that's what he's confessing. Even though I have walked through so much suffering, God has been my shepherd. And he has led me to this point. You see, he trusts God now. He says it again. The angel who has delivered me from all harm. Think about that. The angel who wrenched his hip out of the socket. And he says, he has done me no harm. He's taught me this lesson, that God's will is good. He will do his things, even though we are sinful, even though uh, we suffer, and uh, even though we go through all of this, he has done me no harm, he says, as he looks back at his life. He no longer fights, but submits to God's will. And I, I, I mean, I want to ask, how many of us are still fighting then? How many of us are still fighting against God? It seems that this is the lesson that we must learn by ourselves. Because even Joseph, Joseph in verse 17, he's fighting against this. It's difficult for him to submit to this, uh, God's plan, verse 17. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. And so he took hold of his father's hand and moved it, moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. 
What's, what he's doing is disrespectful, isn't it? The father is doing this on purpose. And he says, no, 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 father, this is the right one. This is how things are supposed to be done. This is the firstborn. You're supposed to bless him. This is how things are supposed to work. And we often take it farther ourselves. We say to God, no, God, this is what I really need. Don't you know? This is what I really want. Don't you know? Why aren't you doing things my way instead of your way? Well, Jacob answers, I know, my son, I know. He says, he too will become great. The thing that you want will happen, he says. He too will become great. But not in the same way that you think is going to happen. That's his answer. God knows. But he's still God. And we're still his children. We don't know as much as he does. As Dale has said before a few weeks back, God's plan is deeper, slower, but deeper and better than we had imagined. I know, my son. I know. I wonder if you could just take a moment to review your life. With what have you struggled most? What made you angry, discontent? What have you been, in what areas have you been fighting God? In what ways have you demanded an explanation from God and failed to trust in His goodness? We all have something, don't we? As we're preparing um, this uh, uh, on Wednesday, we have a little sermon group, and uh, we come with uh, the. the um, I come with a few points that I, I think that I'm going to say, and the staff sits around and helps me. Um, and um, as we were doing this, uh, Katura said this uh, for her. One of the things uh, for her was her university degree. Uh, if you know Katura, our children's worker, you know that she's very bright, and she knows she she uh, she's done quite well uh, in secondary school. She entered university actually twice. But she never graduated. And she tells me that she struggled with God about this. Why? Why did God send me here? I'm sure she would have asked. Is God's will for me? What's what's God's will here? Can I trust in God and live without a university degree? Now, I mentioned that story, Katra's story, because we all have something. But success in Hong Kong is so tied up with academic success that I mentioned it as an example. What would you do if God made it clear to you that God didn't want you to have a university degree? What would you do? If you're a parent and your son or daughter said, actually, God, I, I think God doesn't want me to have a university degree, what would you do? What would you say? Would you be able to let go of that idol in your life? Would you be able to trust in God and submit to his plans? What are the things that you need to let go? Actually, it's not just the letting go of things. For some, it's taking up something that God has told you to do, take up, but you've been refusing. It might be that God wants you to end a relationship that's ungodly. It might be a call to a different workplace or to a mission field. Can we trust and obey God? Can we submit to God's plan? As we've seen a couple of weeks back, it might be forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive and submit to God's will in that? Maybe disappointment that you need to let go. The thing is, throughout Genesis, we have seen how God is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. We can trust God. 
Uh, as we end this series, uh, let's review the major lessons from all of this. And actually, we'll do this by turning to chapter 50. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis. After Jacob dies, he's buried. His brothers get worried. His brothers um, say, well, if the father must have been the reason why he took, Joseph took care of us, now he's dead. He has no longer any reason to take care of us. What should we do? So they throw themselves before Joseph and tell, uh, tell him this lie that their father Jacob told them to tell Joseph to forgive them. And this is what Joseph says in chapter 50, verses 19 to 20. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I think in so many ways, this captures the lessons of Joseph and Jacob. Here's the summary of all of that. Don't place yourself in the place of God. You are not God. Am I in the place of God, he asks. Joseph, despite his power, success, his place in history, doesn't say, I am in the place of God. I can do, I can demand, I I know what is right. I know what should happen. Despite his suffering, despite the betrayal and the years that he spent in prisons, uh, being accused uh, of many different things, he says he is not going to... um, He's going to forgive them because he's not in the place of God. God dictates history. God oversees the ups and downs of the the whole world, but not only the whole world, but the people in our lives. He can forgive. He can let go of his past because he can trust in God who rules over his life. Am I in the place of God? Second lesson is then to trust in God's complete control, that God's will is being done, that his plan is slower but deeper and better than we could imagine. You see, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, he says. Most of us, when we make plans, everything needs to go right in order for us to achieve those plans. But this is not so with God. Rico, uh, Rico Tice of Christianity Explored often says that one is great indeed when you can get your enemies to do your bidding. You can get your enemies to do work for you. And that's what God has done here. You intended evil, but God intend, intended this for good. Even the evil intents of his brothers, all the bad things that happened, you see, it led to Joseph becoming the prime minister, to saving of many lives. God rules over this world. Even the suffering that we see now, we might ask with all the refugees and people drowning and things, we ask ourselves, where is God in this? But what this tells us, what Genesis tells us, is that God still rules, even with all the sufferings, in and through them. And we know this. Um, We know of, 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 of how God does this in our lives. I ended up in Hong Kong and married um, Mary because of a broken engagement. God uses our misfired judgments, even our sinful acts, rebellions, to accomplish his purpose. We all have stories like that, don't we? And the rest of uh, the Bible, the Genesis ends with um, the, God's family being in Egypt. But that's not the end of the story. The rest of the Bible shows us this as well. That how, actually, this was part of God's plan. 
The reason why they end up in Egypt is because God will deliver people from Egypt and make people a great nation, as he had promised. That's part of God's plan. We see that throughout the Old Testament. Um, God had foretold um, this time when God will um, deliver people out of Egypt. He will save a nation. God, God is fulfilling the promise to Abraham. And the story will continue throughout the Old Testament. And, and all the ups and downs, it will climax in Jesus. Story of Jesus. In Jesus Christ. God uses the most evil intents of the people yet again. The cowardice of his disciples. Indifference of the political leaders. Ambition and callousness of the religious leaders. Malice of Satan himself. Will all culminate in Jesus dying on the cross. But God will use that to bring salvation to all who come to him. The lesson in the Bible is this. We are sinners in rebellion. We will do wrong. Wrongs will be done to us. But that's not how it ends. God sent Jesus Christ to pay for our sins and he will use these events in history, ups and downs of our life, and use them to point us to our need of salvation, of our need for a Savior, but not, uh, and, 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 and therefore also to his grace, to his power. He conspires to do his will and to save. But still, in the end, the choice, I mean, I shouldn't say in the end, but still the choice is ours. We still need to come to him. We still need to give our lives over to him, and we still need to trust him. So let's pray. Let's take a moment to pray on our own. For a few minutes, reflect back on ways that you have fought against God's will. And would you take a moment to give your lives back to God and trust in his goodness? Lord, we give you great praise for the life of Jacob, Joseph, that points us towards um, Christ, what you have done in Jesus, and how you are sovereign over all creation. Lord, you have proven yourself again and again that you are God who is worthy of our trust. Help us to trust our lives to you and submit to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.